0: Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of Entrepreneur on Fire, and I want to welcome you to the Game Changers podcast hosted by Michelle Dutroux. I personally cannot speak more highly of the value of mentorship, and this podcast will bring you some of the best. If you want some inspiration back with strategy of how to make your vision a reality, stay tuned and prepare to ignite. Hello there, and... Welcome to the Game Changer Podcast. My name is Michelle Dutro. Thank you so much for joining me. You know, if you missed last Monday's episode with Evan Bullet James, try to go back and check that out at some point in time here as it relates to this topic that we're talking about today on drug addiction intervention what to do to help youth, what to do to help somebody that you know, what to do if you find yourself struggling in any way, shape, or form. And the reason I say that is to compare and contrast today's episode with last Monday is that there are many different approaches to this very large epidemic with uh, drug and alcohol abuse. Today, I'm really excited to be talking to Noah Levine because he has a very different perspective, a very different background, no less, that one may really be surprised to hear that he wound up kind of getting into the amount of trouble that he got in. Now, the reason I say this is because his father is Stephen Levine, who if you are in the yoga or Buddhist community at all, I'm sure you recognize his father's name very well. He is a very prominent uh, individual, has studied under literally the masters in the world of Buddhism. And so I think it's a bit surprising when we see somebody who really does wind up struggling and going down a a bit of a dark path that comes from a very strong, solid family background. I think that when most of us hear of drug addiction or alcohol abuse, we think, oh, that that person came from a broken home or maybe they were abused or, you know, who knows what. But I don't believe that people ever give the consideration to that stigma that that's not always the case that in fact, everything seemingly can be just fine, but that doesn't mean that your life is always going to turn out just fine. So this is a really interesting story. I hope that you enjoy it and are inspired um, by it, and whether that's in your own life or in helping out somebody else. But here's a little bit of his background. Noah is a very highly sought after meditation teacher, lecturer, and addiction counselor whose unique philosophies align with Buddhism and psychology. Noah lectures and teaches meditation classes, workshops, and retreats internationally, as well as leading groups in juvenile halls and prisons. He has helped found several projects and groups, including the Mind-Body Awareness Project, a nonprofit organization that serves incarcerated youth, and Against the Stream, Buddhist Meditation Society. Levine holds a master's degree in counseling psychology and has studied with many prominent teachers in various Buddhist traditions. I said before, he has an incredible background, an incredible story, and unfortunately, like I said, for whatever reason, life took him down a bit of a dark path, and it was quite the journey for him getting out of it and in being able to help people through their journey that was very similar to his own. So, thanks for tuning in, and now here is my conversation with Noah Levine. All right, Noah. So given the entire background that I have just shared with everybody, is there anything else that we should know about you personally before we dive right in?
1: The only thing that comes to mind is uh, my parenting. I have two children. I'm divorced, so a uh, 50-50 custody uh, part-time dad. And um, just I love being a parent, and I really see it as a central part of my spiritual practice, and there's just so much joy in, in parenting for me. Very
0: nice. Well, I share that same love as well, so I get it, believe me. I, they, I have two daughters that are the love of my life as well. So as we dive in here, you have, as I had already mentioned, quite a uh, background of what you are doing. How does one get into uh, anything that is even remotely called a Buddhist path to recovering from addiction? Um, I, I'm curious not only from how you got into teaching what you're teaching, why you have uh, delved so deeply into uh, addiction as uh, as sort of a specialty, if you will, of, of where you want to put your time and energy. So take us back uh, to where this started that was even a glimmer in your eye of, I think this is my path and what I'm meant to do.
1: Well, I mean, for, of course, for me, it starts with my own drug addiction, alcoholism, and just deep, uh, you know, profound suffering in my youth that led to the drug addiction. And, um, and then, you know, a turning point that happened when I was 17 years old, where I was incarcerated, I was in juvenile hall, I was facing uh, my third felony arrest. And uh, for the first time in my life, I took responsibility for my actions. Up to then, I blamed uh, others for for everything that was going on with me. And at that point, I took responsibility, and I was offered Buddhist meditation instructions and addiction recovery uh, support. And that was really the, the game changer and the turning point for me in my life, where I started meditating right there in my cell, And I got a little bit of relief from the meditation, and I stopped drinking and using drugs and, you know, got into recovery. And for a long time, um, I had 12-step recovery, which is a very theistic, open-minded, theistic approach to treatment. Uh, It's about God or higher power. And it never really, the the Judeo-Christian philosophy never resonated very deeply with me, but the more I meditated, the more I became interested in Buddhism, and Buddhism made perfect sense to me because it was non-theistic, it wasn't asking me to believe something, it was just giving me really practical tools that I was seeing direct results from. So, eventually, um, I, you know, created the Buddhist recovery, um, you know, movement.
0: Okay, so let's go back to when you're talking about, uh, you know, th- three times of, um, you know, felony convictions. Let's go back to where that started. So, back in the day, in your much younger days, what was going on? Because I, I, who I'm speaking to right now is either parents that are listening, or maybe a sibling that's listening, or a friend that knows that there's someone in their life that they can see is slipping. Right. And so when you go back to that time, what was going on in your world that made that as a way of life um, uh, attractive and that you even went down that path so people can, that are listening, can start to listen to those cues, if you will, that maybe they need to pay attention to in someone in their world?
1: Right. Um, well, you know, in a, in a simple and general way, it was that I was just in a lot of pain. Uh, my parents had been divorced when I was two years old. There was active alcoholism and addiction in my family. And um, I was feeling, you know, unseen, uncared for, unimportant. And I was feeling suicidal. Even before I started drinking and using, I had a sort of suicidal ideation that just wanted to escape and so, drugs and alcohol, for me, were actually the solution. And I think that this is true for a lot of people. Of course, young people often experiment with drugs and alcohol. But for me, I, I went so far with it because it was giving me relief from the emotional, psychological pain that I was in. And um, and that, you know, when, when one is in pain, I was in so much pain that then I became... Um, to the point where I didn't care about others because I was hurting so much. And so I was, you know, doing actions that were causing harm to other people. And um, and I, I believe that that's just always true. You know, people that are going overboard with drugs and alcohol is they're medicating something. They're, um, you know, they're, they're trying to cover up some pain to escape from it by creating the false pleasure of intoxication.
0: Right, and so back then, you know, and this is, again, the audience that I'm talking to is if someone is in your life and you know they're starting to really go off the off the tracks. Looking back from your perspective now, was there something that somebody could have done if you, I don't know, had a friend or a relative or 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 once you get down down a slippery slope, in your opinion, is that you know you've just got to find your own way that really nobody can step in and help?
1: Well, there is a popular view that addicts have to reach their own bottom to find their own willingness to do their own work in order to recover. And I think that that's mostly true, although we do see success sometimes with interventions, with you know confronting the addict and saying like, look, we really love you and really want to help you and we see that you're suffering and that you're you know, using drugs and alcohol in a, you know, addictive way. And um, so sometimes that, that loving uh, support from friends and family can help. But a lot of times people just really have to find their own willingness. And, and then that's where the my, that's mysterious, right? That's not where like somebody can just do something or say something and help the addict or alcoholic stop drinking. Usually there has to be some sort of internal uh willingness and where that willingness comes from, on some level, I think feel like is pain tolerance, like how much pain, the pain, the suffering, in refuge recovery, we talk about the suffering of addiction. The first step is uh, to acknowledge how much suffering there is being an, an alcoholic or an, a drug addict and and uh, to stop denying it. And, you know, so a a piece of it is how much suffering can one tolerate? Right. Now, when somebody has been raised in a a situation where they feel unworthy of happiness, when they've had a lot of pain in their life, sometimes that suffering of addiction um, is so comfortable or so normal or so, um, you know, become so habituated to it that it's very hard to break out of that cycle.
0: Right. So let's fast forward. As you said, you were... Obviously, in um, jail, it was the, your third time, and somehow, so, I don't know if it was a program that was being offered at the time, where you said that uh, was when you were first introduced to um, meditation, is that right?
1: Yeah, I was, um, sorry, the, the programs that were coming into the jails were church groups and 12-step meetings, Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous. Got it. Um, the meditation instructions came to me through my father. My father was a long-time. I'm a meditator. Uh, My father is Stephen Levine. He was a famous, uh, he actually passed away this January, but he was a famous uh, author and teacher and, um, you know, meditation guide for so many people, written, you know, like 10 books. And, you know, so I grew up around meditation. But I thought, you know, I was a punk rocker, I was a rebel, and I thought that that was for, like, you know, nice hippies or something. (laughs) Uh, So, but he took the opportunity, he saw how much I was suffering, and he said, do you want to try meditation? And I just was finally at that place of desperation and willingness, where I said, I'll even try that. Right. And then when I tried the meditation, I had the direct experience of relief, which was as simple as, for the first time in my life when i paid attention to my breath and did this mindfulness of breathing and body it occurred to me that i didn't have to obey my mind and that my mind was telling me to take drugs and to steal and to you know be violent and unskillful and that with the meditation i you know was offered a technique to actually ignore those unskillful thought patterns
0: so there's a lot of people i'm sure that are listening right now that maybe don't have that background yeah, that are gonna say, okay, are you kidding me right now? You right. know, here you are, you're you're in jail. Yeah. Uh, you know, you're a felon. Yeah, uh, a drug addict, and then you just sit there, quiet your mind, and a thought pops in your head saying, "Hey, you can make another choice."
1: Well, it was just that that desperation, uh, and it wasn't you know, it wasn't that the mind started being you know like you can make another choice. It was that I was given a technique that said you can actually ignore your mind. Right. You can pay attention, you can, every time you get lost in those thoughts, you can come back to your breath. And so, this is where it's actually, mindfulness is so practical, because, you know, if you're in extreme suffering, it works. But also, if just in some stress, some repetitive resentment, or some challenging uh, situation in your family or in in your profession, you know, you you bring mindfulness into the present, and most of our suffering is about what happened in the past, or fear of what's going to happen in the future. So, there's this amazing relief that happens when we come into the here and now, and that's what I was experiencing in that jail cell almost 30 years ago, was the relief of bringing my attention into the present.
0: Perfect. And I do have to ask that question because my background is also in guided meditation. And if I was too overboard with you, then people would think that you and I are just, uh, you know, both crazy. So I I have to be that voice of the listener going, seriously now? But yeah, yeah, trust me, I I get it completely. And, you know, meditation, thankfully, is... And whether, you know, it's more palatable for people to grab onto the word of mindfulness or stillness or calming the mind if they can't deal with meditation and feel like they're going to, you know, revert back to being in the 60s. But the reality is I am I am glad that people, no matter what their reasoning is, are coming to understand exactly that, the relevance and what it does when you can truly be present
1: well, and it's this beautiful thing now that, uh, you know, Western psychology, science, medicine has done all of these, you know, studies, neurobiology studies on how mindfulness completely works for stress reduction, for treatment of depression, for increasing happiness and joy, for, you know, so pain management, like now Americans actually have proof, it's not some flaky spiritual thing, it's, uh, you know, scientifically proven that mindfulness is beneficial to anyone who practices it.
0: Exactly. And what I love is the fact that it's the one thing that you don't actually have to do. <laughs> it's actually right. in the not doing, right? Right. Uh, right, The not worrying, the not thinking, the not looking back. So, okay, so all of that, you said something uh, that was very key. And I will tell you, I, I think a lot of people go their whole life without really being able to embrace this. Com- the comment you made, which is, and then one day I decided to take responsibility. Right. <laughs> that, unfortunately, you know, for a lot of people, uh, play the role of the victim their yeah. entire life, or there's always some story or reason why yeah. uh, whatever is going on in their life is going on. So, how in the world, uh, coming from the background that you had, did you get to that place? You know, I can't,
1: and I don't feel like I have a great answer to this question because I don't really know how I got there other than I was just in so much pain and I had been in so much denial and delusion for so long that it just wasn't working anymore. And you know, I just couldn't blame and uh, you know feel like a victim anymore. It was it was almost sometimes people talk about like that spiritual awakening or that moment of uh, you know kind of some kind of divine intervention or something like that where it, I just feel like the. Rationalization and the uh, was just removed, and there was just this moment of seeing my mind and my life clearly. And I didn't quite know why or how I had gotten into that place, but I knew it was because of my own actions and no one else's.
0: So, uh, did this happen? Was this all in your third uh, time through when you're in jail?
1: Well, I mean, I'd been in, I'd been in that same. Uh, juvenile hall probably 10 times. Okay. But this was, you know, this was my third, like, major, like, felony arrest. and right. uh, You know, I'd been in, and I was 17 years old. I got arrested the first time when I was 11. Hmm. You know, so, I mean, I just had this crazy youth. Right. And then, um, you know... It wasn't until I'd been meditating for a while that I started to understand what taking responsibility means and that, you know, it's was such a big part of my recovery to wake up and, uh, and see that my happiness or unhappiness was not dependent on what was happening as much as dependent on how I was responding to what's happening right and i think that that's the big piece for for most people is that they say well you know if, if if some pleasure is happening then i'm happy and if some pain is happening then i'm unhappy but you know studying buddhism and practicing mindfulness uh, you know, showed me directly that I'm responsible for my happiness even if I'm in pain and that through meeting pain with compassion, and this is so key for the recovering addict, learning to tolerate pain and to meet it with compassion rather than saying, oh, I'm suffering, I'm unhappy, I'm angry about this unpleasant experience, because we all come to understand pain is unavoidable. Right. And, you know, you can only drink it away for so long. Right. Right. And eventually, you have to just deal with it. And that's what really, that's what the Buddha was saying, that's what meditation teaches us is how are you going to deal with your pain? And not only the pain, but how are you going to deal with the pleasure because the pleasure is impermanent and when you're addicted to it, when you're attached to it, when you're constantly clinging to impermanent experiences, then you have all of that stress and suffering of loss, constant loss. So in Refuge Recovery, we're really focusing on helping addicts, as I did in my own experience, um, you know, change their relationship to pleasure and pain, and therefore be able to maintain uh, abstinence, renunciation, and to be able to recover.
0: So stick with me on this one. Here's, here's my uh, next question on, on, on mindset, to your point of regardless of what's going on in your external world, it's your internal world is really the one that matters right? Yes. So, talk to me about the difference between, obviously, you're incarcerated, let's talk about the, you know, the third felony conviction, compared to one uh, several years earlier when you hadn't got to the place that you had gotten to through mindfulness and meditation. Obviously, that external world is the same. It's jail, right? It's the guards, it's the, you know, clanking of the cell, it's the same food, it's the time in the yard, all that stuff is all the exact same. But as you evolved internally... Talk to me about how your perception of the outside world and how you dealt with that outside world changed because your internal one was starting to evolve and change.
1: Right. Well, you know, I don't know if this is exactly what you're asking, but part of of what happened for me was a lot of my early life, because I'd been in, you know, kind of drugs and violences, that I was often uh, afraid for my own safety. And I even thought that, like, meditation was going to make me vulnerable um, because I was living a, you know, an an unskillful life. And as I started meditating, I started to perceive the world not not as so unsafe. And this amazing thing happened is that when I stopped lying and stealing, people stopped attacking me. (laughs) And then my external world actually (laughs) became safer (laughs) and safer and safer. And uh, and my internal world, slowly over the years, you know, I did a lot of forgiveness, self-forgiveness. I did a lot of um, asking for forgiveness. Uh, you know, Refuge Recovery, it's a really central tenant to forgive ourselves, forgive others, and to ask for forgiveness and to make amends to all of the people that we've harmed in our life. And, you know, so I put so much energy into that to the point where, you um, know, you know, not only my perception of the, uh, the world, but actually my experience of walking through the world became more and more at ease.
0: So when, what, how old were you when you got out for the last time, when that was it, when you were done with all that world?
1: Eight, 18 years old. I was locked up, you know, when I was 17, they basically said, we're going to keep you to your 18. And I started meditating and I got sober and I've stayed sober for 28 years now.
0: Excellent. Well, congratulations on that. That's um Thank you. that is a very big deal. And uh, s- staying with the 18-year-old self you got out, obviously I'm assuming you can't dive back into that world with those same friends and that all that same environment uh and maintain staying the course. So, how do you at 18 re-enter what was used to be your world? Yeah. Uh how do you create a new reality from that point?
1: Well, for me, you know, it was 12-step rooms and Buddhist uh, communities, so a lot of it is in the community, and so, you know, I, I connected with a bunch of recovering young people, Um, And then I, you know, recovered and and connected with a whole bunch of old meditators. (laughs) And, you know, in the Buddhist world, I found this philosophy that I really loved, but I wasn't so connected to the community because they were all like my parents' friends and my parents' age. But in, you know, in the 12-step rooms, I found a bunch of young people who were also recovering and they became my community. Um, But, you know, honestly, for me, uh, I continued to be part of the punk scene. I continued to, you know, ride motorcycles and drive low riders and kind of the cultural stu- subculture that I had always been a part of, c- I continued to be a part of then and now. Um, but I was, you know, a drug-free force within that community.
0: Okay, so how, how does that how does that work? How do you maintain that same path, but, uh, you know, obviously on a whole different side of the fence? Uh, right. Are you around people that are still, you know, partying to that degree and just saying, you know, thanks but no thanks?
1: Yeah, some, some of that, but then also going to the um, punk shows or the, you know, car clubs or motorcycle rallies or whatever it is with other people who are in recovery. Because, you know, in all of those scenes, there's lots of drug addicts and alcoholics. So there will also be some people who are recovering drug addicts and alcoholics. And so, you know, I I had a whole community of people who would, you know, be sober at the punk show or be Mm -hmm. sober at, you know, in the car scene or whatever it was. And so uh, I would participate, but not usually alone. I wouldn't be the only one.
0: Right. Well, now that makes sense. Now that makes much more sense. I was going to say that's. uh, it's very difficult to be the lone ranger in a situation and think that you're going to be able to um, maintain, right, a a whole different reality.
1: Yeah. No, we need support. We need community. And I feel like so much of addiction is actually about our attachment. Uh, and, And some would say that addiction is actually an attachment disorder and that the ways that Uh, we heal and recover is so often through community and, you know, relationships.
0: Agreed. Uh, Yeah. Well, this could be a whole nother show topic uh, for the why's behind uh, why we do what we do. Yeah. Now for where you are now. So what is your greatest uh, work that you're excited uh, mainly about now? And, you know, where's that headed? Ideally, what what is what is next on the horizon for you?
1: Well, it's a little bit hard to say because I have kind of three big projects that I feel passionate about. Um, but the the newest one, of course, is the newest passion. Um, you know, Mind Body Awareness Project is the group that I started that goes into juvenile halls and teaches kids meditation. You know, and those kids are me 30 years ago. Right. And so, you know, that's really important. And, and I want people to know about the Mind Body Awareness Project. And then I have uh, against the Stream Buddhist Meditation Society, and we have centers in San Francisco and Los Angeles and New York and kind of all over the country, and that's, you know, an open door uh, meditation center for people to come and, and practice and deepen their, their wisdom and compassion. But my newest uh, thing is Refuge Recovery where we, you know, I've opened a treatment center where people can come for detox and residential and they can come and use these practices and Buddhist philosophies as well as, you know, the best traditional treatment uh, practices of, you know, psychology and psychiatry and, and get that support. And there's refuge recovery meetings all over the world now. There's a couple hundred refuge recovery meetings. And so that's kind of my newest and, and you know, kind of strongest passion right now is providing support for recovering addicts and, and, and in a Buddhist context.
0: So if someone's listening to this right now and they're thinking, I'd, I'd like to see if there's a center near me or I'd like to learn more about this, and I'll put this in show notes, but where would they go?
1: They go to refuge refugerecovery.com. Or against the stream.org. Perfect. Yeah.
0: And your work with um, incarcerated youth is that is still going on?
1: It is still going on, yeah. That's you know, for almost 20 years now we've had this 501c3 nonprofit organization whose, you know, core mission is to offer mindfulness meditation, instructions and support to incarcerated youth.
0: So, uh, I'm sure that there are a lot of people that have uh, no idea that this is even an offering or is what's going on. I got training through Yoga Behind Bars up in Seattle, so I'm very aware of it. Yeah. but. But from what you have seen over the years, what is the single most significant change, if you will, that you have seen in um, teaching kids meditation, who I think typically are resistant of most things? Um, What do you you see with them over time?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, over and over, we see the resistance in the beginning and the kind of skepticism Mm -hmm. of what are you guys, you know, trying to sell or, you know, how does this make sense? And then you see it on the third session or fourth session or somewhere down the road where they start to say, hey, This is actually giving me some relief from this very difficult time in my life where I'm not sure what's going to happen at court and I'm separated from anybody, you know, my family or friends. And uh, so, you see the relief that it's providing from them, you know, relief from suffering. And then occasionally, you know, uh, a year later or years later, you'll have these, you know, teenagers come up and say, you taught me meditation when I was in juvie and it changed everything for me.
0: That's what, that was, well, you got right to my next question is, have yeah. you heard from people after the fact?
1: Yeah, you know, since we're working with minors, you can't really keep in touch. You know, it's uh, the legalities of staying in touch with with minors without their kind of guardian's permission. Right. Um, so, but, but because we're very public and they know where to find us, often they do come find us.
0: That is amazing. So, uh, I could take a guess at this, but I'm uh, just going to ask. So, your legacy... You know, when all is said and done, if there's something that you are known for in this lifetime, what is that for you?
1: Well, I mean, I'm hoping it's the Buddhist recovery stuff. Um, I mean, Dharma punks uh, is still, it was my first book, and it's still probably. Uh, the most famous, you know, so people, you know, see me and they're like, oh, Dharma punks. (laughs) So, I mean, kind of, you know, based on the public's sentiment, they're probably still, uh, you know, kind of saying that's your legacy, which was cool and I'm happy to have been able to provide Buddhism to the punk scene, but um, it's really the, the recovering addicts that um, I just feel so passionate about wanting to supply this methodology that I know works so well for, you know, treatment of addiction.
0: And Dharma Punks is your memoir, right? Yeah. From yeah. Uh, back in those days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'll have uh, links to that as well. Um, well, I, I had thought that that was uh, probably what it is. I mean, uh, I don't know of many more things more noble than um, helping kids out that need it to and yeah. don't know where else to turn. And I'm so grateful that you are out there doing the work that you're doing in a much needed uh, area. So, um, so fantastic. So if someone is listening, and they would like to make a difference, you know, I ask these same two questions of everybody. If someone is listening, and they think, oh, I'm just one person, what can I do? What would be the single piece of advice you would give somebody um, who would like to make a difference, but like I said, they don't, they don't really think that one person can really have that much of an impact. What would that advice be?
1: Well, I would always encourage people to start from the inside with their own heart, with their own mind, to really be developing compassion um, towards their own pain. And, um, you know, non-attachment towards, you know, things that are changing in their life. And so to and to balance that, that with an engagement that says, from the inside out, and that sort of probably overused, I'm sure used often on your show, uh, Mahatma Gandhi quote about be the change, right? Like if you really want to see the change in the world, like be it, really embody it. And, you know, so I think that that's the, the most important thing.
0: Fantastic. And my last question, out of everything that your journey through life has brought to you, what is one thing that you absolutely believe to be true?
1: Um, well, I land in, uh, you know, all things are impermanent and nothing is worth clinging to.
0: Excellent. That is uh, a nice aparigraha place to <laughs> land on. <laughs> very good. Like I said, we speak the same language, so yeah. I, I appreciate it very much. And, you know, I agree. I, I do hope that people spend time thinking about this conversation and what it is we're clinging on to, especially when there's so many things that absolutely in no way serve us, yet for yes. some reason we certainly seem to make time to hang on to them, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, I appreciate you and your time so very much. Like I said, all of this is going to be in show notes. So if someone is looking for help themselves or is looking for a resource for someone else, this will all be there. And I, uh, like I said, I appreciate you immensely and uh, please keep up the great much needed work.
1: Thank you. Very happy to be on the show.
0: Thanks, Noah. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening in on this episode of the Game Changers podcast. The next step is to hit the subscribe button to make sure you never miss an episode or any of our incredible guests. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you next time.